Hello, and welcome to The Second Location. But you don't have to worry, because you're not alone. I'm your host, Holly, and I'm here to continue our ongoing examination of the Florida furniture store murders and the unjust conviction of Tommy Ziegler. Let's do a tiny recap. Last episode, I talked about the warrantless search of the crime scene and all of the evidence that was recovered. Tommy was arrested, and after a preliminary hearing, he was released on bond, and the judge had implied that the prosecution didn't have much of a case. The state found out that two of the guns used in the murders were registered to a Frank Smith, a friend of Edward Williams, the prosecution's star witness. While the lawyers were preparing for trial, the investigators were drumming up rumors about Tommy being gay. It would be laughable if it didn't have such tragic results. But this is where we stand in the timeline. The grand jury has indicted Tommy, and if convicted, he now can face the death penalty. But even with the grand jury indicting Tommy, behind the scenes, the detectives and prosecutors begin to worry about the evidence. Well, it's more they begin to worry about the lack of evidence that implicates Tommy. As results trickled in, the state was disappointed to see that the forensics didn't support their theory of the crime. But they didn't let that slow them down or make them wonder whether they had arrested the right guy. I'm just going to list off some of the lab results because it's a lot. Uh, ballistic tests determined that both Virginia and Perry were killed with the security, Securities Industries 38 that Tommy kept in his truck. Keep in mind, that's the gun that Edward Williams turned into the police. Williams had access to this truck and the passenger door of the truck didn't lock. So he definitely could have swiped that gun from the truck. Virginia Edwards was first shot with one of the RG revolvers in the chest, and the shot that killed her was a shot to her head, and the shot came from the Security Industries 38. So, just to make it clear it up a little bit, Virginia was first shot with the gun bought by Edward Williams' friend, Frank Smith, and then she was fatally shot by a gun of Tommy's that Edward Williams turned into the police after the murders and had access to. The bullet that killed Eunice could not you know, for sure tied to any specific gun, but the bullet bore rifling twists and grooves consistent with either of the two RG revolvers that Frank Smith had bought from the pawn shop. The 22 Smith & Wesson that Tommy kept on his person and was found at Charlie May's feet had been shot once before it jammed. There was a 38 Burgo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Burgo Derringer that held only two rounds and it had fired a single shot and two bloody cartridges were found in a desk drawer. They had likely been misfires. Neither the 22 in Ziegler's desk nor the 38 Smith & Wesson in the Dunaway car had been fired. So there are eight guns in the total. Two were never fired. So we're kind of take those out of the equation. So there are six guns that were actually used at the crime scene. And one murder weapon was in the possession of Edward Williams after the murders, while another two of the murder weapons were bought by a friend of Edward Williams. Why am I feel like I'm the only one who was really questioning Edward Williams' account of that night? So I've been outlining the forensic reports from the FBI, but there was one test that the FBI did not put in a report. Instead, the FBI and the state entered into a verbal agreement to conduct this test and the FBI only verbally reported the results to the state and the prosecution never told the defense about this test. The FBI's failure to create a report about these test results meant that there weren't any documents to turn over to the defense during the discovery process. So if you don't create a document, you have nothing to turn over. Presumably it's not a Brady violation, but it's an underhanded move. 
and speaks to the questionable tactics the state was willing to go to to convict Tommy. And it speaks to how uncertain they were about this case, that before they were going to have this test conducted, they entered into agreement to hide the results because they were worried about what the results were going to be. The state should never be hiding evidence from the defense. Never. It's inexcusable. The defense never would have even found out about the test results. But during the trial, a defense lawyer actually asked the FBI if they had conducted this certain test during his trial testimony. And that's the only reason the defense ever learned that the pants that Tommy was wearing the night of the murders did not contain any gunshot residue. Take a second and just think about that. The prosecution argues that Tommy killed four people and shot himself, and yet he has no gunshot residue on his pants. There were, I think, 38 shots fired at the scene between multiple guns, and still the state accepts that Tommy had no gunshot residue on his pants. And the fact that the state didn't tell the defense about this, this test result, shows just how important it was. Sadly, both the state and the FBI had no intention of ever letting the defense know this. It's underhanded the way the FBI in Florida tried to hide these test results from the defense. It makes me wonder, were there any other verbal agreements between the FBI and the investigators to circumvent discovery and the release of exculpable test results to the defense? The question is justified. If they did it once, then they might do it again. Now, let's talk about footprint analysis. The FBI's report on the footprints at the scene contained findings that ripped apart the investigators' theories about how the crime had occurred. Theories that Don Fry just couldn't admit were not supported by the evidence. There was a bloody shoe print beside Perry Edwards' body that the FBI determined did not match Tommy's shoes. Fry had personally already decided that that was Tommy's shoe print when he conducted a half-assed amateur comparison between Tommy's shoe and the print at the crime scene. I think this is a major factor in his initial quick decision that Tommy was guilty. And it's a major part of his entire theory. And even the prosecution's blood expert, Herb McDonald, had determined that the footprint beside Perry Edwards' body had been left by the killer. This footprint was a focal point of the state's case. But the FBI determined that that wasn't Tommy's shoe print. Okay, now, in my opinion, this should give the state a moment of pause to take a beat and reflect on the actual substance of their case. But they just ignore the evidence that doesn't fit with their theory and set out to find experts that will agree with the state's theory of the case. And that's just not how things should be done. Now, let me explain this a little further. The prosecution submitted bloody shoe prints to the FBI for analysis. And while some shoe prints didn't have enough detail in the photographs to determine whether they were made by Tommy's shoes, there were other shoe prints where the details in the photos were sufficient. And the FBI determined that those prints were not made by Tommy. What I don't know is did the FBI compare the shoes of Perry Edwards and Charlie Mays to those prints as well? I would assume that they did, but you don't know for sure. I would also like to point out that Felton Thomas's clothes and shoes were never collected, so his, his shoes were definitely not compared to the bloody shoe print, which I think is a major mistake. Also, it's pretty clear that Edward Williams didn't turn over the actual shoes he was wearing that night, and, I mean, could his actual shoes he wore that night have been a match? It's possible. Or do we have a footprint of an unknown seventh person at the crime scene? You just can't be sure because we're not sure who all they compared to. We know they didn't compare it to Thomas. We don't know, but there's questions about the clothes that Edward Williams handed over. They might not be what he was actually wearing. And if the state hadn't rushed 
to charge Tommy so soon after the murders and instead waited until the lab results came in, they would have had a better picture of the evidence and what it actually meant, not just what Donald Fry said it meant. And if they had waited for lab results, I honestly don't think Tommy would have been even charged with the murders because the forensics don't implicate him. But once he was charged, the state took a position that they just couldn't back down and they couldn't admit that they were wrong. These are men that would send an innocent man to death instead of admitting they had made a mistake. At best, they were blind to evidence that didn't fit their theory. At worst, they simply ignored it. Okay, now to the blood evidence. First, the red smears on the door handle to Curtis Dunaway's car were not blood, and the amount of blood on the car seat's headrest was so small that it couldn't even be typed. I'm Honestly, it makes me wonder, if how did you even see that it's that small? I'm not saying, oh, you can't get DNA from it. I'm saying, no, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's a while back, don't get me wrong, but it couldn't even be typed. So that's a really small amount of blood. The towel retrieved from Tommy's garage, that this towel was used by the state to support William's story that Tommy had wiped down Dunaway's car before he left with Williams. That towel from Tommy's garage contained no traces of blood. The blood on the Holiday Inn towel taken from the master bathroom in Tommy's house, well, that blood wasn't human blood. Keep in mind that he did own six cats and one had been to the doctors that day for an abscess, so that might be the source of the blood, but it wasn't human, so I, I mean, I'm just guessing cat, but it, you know, who knows? But the investigators aren't finding any blood evidence in Tommy's home. And that strikes me as odd because the state claims Tommy went home twice after the murders had begun, but he managed to leave no blood trail after killing four people and including beating someone to death. And look at the lack of blood in the Curtis Dunaway car, which he's supposed to have driven back and forth to the crime scene after he had killed three people. He's driving in that vehicle, but there's no, really no blood other than a speck of blood that's so small it can't even be blood typed. Now, this next part is pivotal, so listen up, buttercups. The blood typing results showed that the trail of blood from the store's customer service counter to the front door had been left by either Perry Edwards, Eunice, Charlie Mays, or an unknown bleeder who had type A blood. Fry, Donald Fry, had assumed that this was Tommy's blood from when he made the phone call for help and then walked to the front door to let the responders in. But it can't be Tommy's blood. Tommy has type O blood. There were no type O droplets in that trail of blood. So one of the major points that Fry developed almost immediately upon arriving at the crime scene and was the basis for much, much, I mean, almost everything that Fry thought happened that night had just been wrong. The trail of blood from the customer service area to the front store was not Tommy's. Just like the footprint that was beside Perry Edwards' body that Donald Fry had determined was the killer's footprint. And Donald Fry had decided on its own comparison that that matched Tommy's shoe. Well, the FBI decided that's not Tommy's footprint. And that blood trail that Donald Fry had insisted was Tommy's, it's not Tommy's. So all the thoughts that Donald Fry had that night, all the his brilliance, it's showing to have been all of it incorrect. And if they had just waited to find these things out, they would have known that that theory was not found in the facts and abandoned it, but they never waited. They charged Tommy and moved ahead with the trial. Now, the importance of that blood trail, I'll explain now. It's because Don Fry believed that Tommy had walked to the phone at the customer service area and called for help. And after placing that call, that's when Donald Fry thinks that Tommy shot himself. And because he was, you know, 
at that point, after he makes a phone call, Tommy knows it helps on the way. So more likely he would survive. And this was one of Fry's first conclusions at the crime scene and really the linchpin of his theory that Tommy was guilty. So a major tenet of Fry's theory of that night was just shown to be false. But Fry is never going to admit it and let go of that theory that Tommy shot himself after calling for help. There isn't a trail of Tommy's blood from the phone to the front of the store. After being beaten and shot, Tommy lost consciousness for a while. And by the time he comes to, his bleeding has largely stopped and his bloody shirt is almost dry. So there should be, in Tommy's account of it, there makes sense that there would be no trail of blood from the back of the store to the front because he's not hardly bleeding. And Tommy's story, it lines up with the blood evidence at the scene. Now, here's the really only test result that did not look good for the defense's case. Very little of Tommy's blood type was found in the back of the store. So Tommy alleges that he was beaten and shot in the back of the storeroom. And the lack of blood in that back area raises some questions about his story. But really, that is the only forensic test that doesn't help Tommy's case and doesn't align with his story that he's told the police from the beginning. And it's not like a large pool of Tommy's blood was found somewhere else in the store showing that he was shot at a different location. So I don't find it too significant, but you know, full disclosure is that that really, you know, it doesn't look great for Tommy. Now I'm sure that you all know there it was no DNA testing in 1975. And of course there was blood typing, but beyond that, there was subtyping that looked at particular enzymes in the blood. And because blood was taken from all the victims at the scene before embalming, it was almost guaranteed that with the prompt retrieval of samples from the crime scene, it was almost guaranteed that even without DNA, analysts would be able to determine whose blood was whose at the crime scene. And I find that just very interesting that even in 1975, all of the blood at the scene could have been mapped out. The investigators would have been able to trace people's movements after they were injured. One issue is that these enzymes degrade over time and the blood evidence must be collected within 10 days. The police held the scene, denying the defense team access to the store while the state waited on the arrival of an out-of-state blood expert, Herb McDonald, the big expert. The investigators promised that the defense team, that the samples had been taken, which is very important because the state holds control of the crime scene for over 10 days. And the defense never had the chance to collect samples themselves before this critical 10-day time period passed. But the sheriff's department called in the big guns first. They sent off the bulk of their evidence to the FBI for testing. And then they call in the father of blood spatter analysis. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is it Dexter? Do they call in Dexter? <laughs> no, it's Herbert McDonald. I just mentioned his name before. But much like Dexter... You know, he's fictional. Herb's real. And he's also a criminal. Decades after Tommy's trial, an elderly Herb McDonald pled guilty to some super creepy and sexual endangering the welfare of a child type charges. It has nothing at all to do with this case. And Herb invented, you know, a forensic science that at least now is partially considered junk science. But also, I mean, he is super creepy with kids. I just don't like it. And I think it's gross. And it's noteworthy. It doesn't mean that he's not an expert in things. It just means he's yuck. Okay, so now old Herb, he's a big shot. I mean, he pioneered 
blood spatter analysis as a forensic field. So he can't just show up at the crime scene immediately. It's the holidays, you know, it's basically Christmas. And he has other commitments. So the investigators hold the scene waiting for Herb's arrival. The scene was held for days, and this caused the defense to become concerned that this long wait would cause the blood as evidence to deteriorate and lose its value, and that the blood wouldn't be able to be subtyped. The defense was assured that the blood evidence had already been collected. At this time, the defense does not have access to the scene, so they just have to wait until the state releases the scene until they can get in there themselves and investigate. They have to trust the investigators that the blood was collected in time. In hindsight, I think Tommy's lawyers should have motioned for limited access to the crime scene to allow them to collect blood samples themselves. But that's easy to say now when we realize that the blood samples were never fully tested by the FBI for subtyping. You know, this crucial evidence was lost, but, you know, they didn't know that then. They trusted the investigators when they said adequate samples had been taken. Sometimes you can't trust people. So when Herb finally gets to Winter Garden, he basically parrots the state's theory right back at them. And he finds that all of the evidence that he examines fits the state's conclusions. He just doesn't seem like an independent thinker here. And he makes conclusions that go beyond what the physical evidence says. Herb miraculously concluded, like this is like, I don't know where he came up with this, that Charlie Mays was not even in the store at the time that Perry Edwards was murdered. But based on what? That's a pretty strong statement to say for a fact that Charlie Mays was not in the store when Perry Mays was murdered. Honestly, I think he bases this on, that's what the police say happened, so I agree. Like a hired gun situation, like, they're the ones paying me, I'm gonna go along with them. I would be curious to find out how often Herb was hired by either the prosecution or the defense, and he didn't agree with the theories proposed by those who paid him. I Seriously, I find that very interesting, because it goes to credibility. Does he ever get hired and have a contradiction with the people he's employed by? I just don't know. The way he backs up absolutely all of Donald Fry's theories that turn out to be a, a load of crap, and he's supposed to be a professional expert, and you're believing a load of crap, it just makes me think either you're not an expert, like you don't know what you're doing, or you're willing to say anything to get dollar dollar bills, yo. I don't know, but the Herb McDonald thing is really makes me feel very uncomfortable with justice being achieved, because I think he's like a major impediment to it. But Herb said Charlie Mays could not have been in the store when Perry Edwards died because the blood spatters created when Charlie Mays was murdered did not mix with the blood that was already on the floor from Perry Edwards. I think that Detective Fry just fawned all over Herb and Herb just lapped it right on up because what Herb just said about the blood spatter analysis of Perry and Charlie's blood doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Charlie's blood fell on top of Perry's blood and the blood didn't mix together. So I agree with Herb that that means Perry's blood was dry when drops of Charlie's blood fell on top of Perry's. But that doesn't mean that Charlie wasn't in the store when Perry was killed. It just means that Charlie's blood didn't come into contact with Perry's blood until 15 to 30 minutes after Perry's blood landed on the floor. Simply said, Charlie could have been in the store when Perry was attacked. And that Charlie was attacked after Perry, you know, probably at least 15 to 30 minutes after Perry was assaulted. But because the blood didn't mix, Herb concluded that Charlie wasn't even in the store when Perry was attacked. And that is a conclusion that just isn't supported by reason. The fact that the two men didn't, the two men's blood didn't mix just means a period of time passed between their attacks. That's all that can be inferred. 
not one's presence at the scene at the time of the murder. Tommy's shoulder holster was found on top of a blood smear near Charlie May's body, but no blood transferred to the holster. So it is theorized that the holster only landed on that spot of blood after it had dried. And I get that. I mean, that makes sense. But also, we have to remember this scene. How many groups, how many people were there that walked through that store in the dark? I think it was 11 people total, if I got my numbers correctly from counting them up. And two people went through twice in the dark. Those are just the people that went in there in the dark. Couldn't the holster have been accidentally kicked or pushed to the location where it was found? You know, of course it could have been, but McDonald doesn't even consider that a possibility. He determines that the holster position means that Charlie Mays died at least 15 minutes before the shoulder holster fell onto the bloody patch near his body. So what I'm gonna say next is kind of surprising because if there is a good guy in this story, and I'm just surprised like, where's the good guy in this story been so far? But anyway, if there is one, I'm gonna say it's Officer Jimmy Yon because he makes some statements that contradict the opinions of other investigators and that is rare for a policeman. Yon, along with Police Chief Thompson, remember they're the first officers to enter the furniture store that night. And listen to this. Officer Yon states during his deposition, so this is under oath, that when he first went into this furniture store, he saw the shoulder holster and it was several feet away from the location where Fry ultimately found it near Charlie May's body. It wasn't on top of the blood smear when they first went into that back room. And this is according to a police officer that was one of the two first men on the scene. That holster was accidentally moved with all these people trampling around the crime scene in the dark. So the idea that, that, that the holster was on top of a dried blood smear and had no transfer to it, so the holster had to, you know, had to have been time passed during the crime for the blood to dry and then the holster to fall on it. It doesn't, it just should go away because right there you have a, the first policeman on the scene telling you, well, the holster wasn't in that position when we first got there. Something happened. It was moved. It was moved on top of that blood. So the lack of a transfer means nothing because obviously the blood had dried before that had gotten on there, before the holster had gotten on top of the blood because so much time had passed in just the arrival of waiting for the police to show up and waiting, you know, Tommy taken to the hospital and then they go in. The holster doesn't have the meaning that they once thought it did have. And we know that thanks to Jimmy Young. He could have sat on that and never said that in his deposition and no one would know. And that would be actually a big factor against Tommy if we didn't have Officer Yon's testimony in that position. Okay. Remember when I said that there may have been evidence planted on the scene, um, you know, or the scene stage to give it a homosexual undertones or flair to corroborate the theory that Tommy was a homosexual? Well, here it is. Charlie May's pants were unzipped and pulled down. Now, his underwear up, and the underwear don't have any blood spatter on them that you can see on the, like the outside of the underwear. And I just, you know, take that in for a minute, okay? This man's pants were pulled down. And yeah, I know it's weird and I don't think it happened in the struggle because they are unzipped. Now, McDonald believed that the killer sat on Charlie, like over his hips, groin area, like straddled him, you know, like sat over him, straddled him on his knees while beating him to death, thus preventing blood splatter from getting on the underwear or his pants were actually up when he was beaten and this makes more sense to me in that his pants were pulled down after he had been killed you can find um, crime scene photos of the position of his pants and don't worry he's not exposed like like i said his underwear are pulled up i mean it would be crime scene photographs and you are looking at a, a man 
you know, it, it's, it's a very, um, it's a powerful picture. It's a man's been beaten to death and his clothes are definitely in disarrangement. But investigators will try to um, paint the position of Charlie's pants as evidence of a sexual element to the crime. And this is important because the state alleges that Tommy was secretly a homosexual. And even later at the appellate level, a prosecutor will imply that Tommy performed a sex act or may implied that Tommy may have imp performed a sex act on Charlie May's corpse. Yeah, I just said that and I stumbled over it because that's how uncomfortable I felt saying it. Apparently in Florida, homosexuals are held in such a low regard that people feel free to accuse anyone that they think may be gay of also being a necrophile. Personally, I don't think the two are linked in any way. But just listen, because this really bothers me. <laughs> Remember Jimmy Yon? Him and Chief Thompson were the first investigators to enter the store after, you know, Tommy was rushed to the hospital. Jimmy Yon testifies. This is why I think this guy might be the hero here. He might be the good guy. Jimmy Yon testifies that Charlie May's pants were in the normal position, pulled up when he first saw the body. One can only infer that an investigator or someone who had access to the crime scene after Jimmy Yon had seen Charlie May's corpse, and that's only going to be the investigators. I mean, I don't know who else would have been in there other than investigators. And if there were other people in there, they need, I mean, there, there's no excuse for it. Oh, wait, I do remember they brought Felton Thomas in for some bizarre reason. I mean, so maybe they did let other people have access to it, but I'd like to think that while Charlie May's body was still on the floor, they weren't just letting people in there traipse around and mess around with people's pants. But anyway, my point is, his pants were moved from the position that they were in when Jimmy on first officer on the scene saw him, saw Charlie Mays. The investigators had control of the scene. One of the investigators had to have altered the position of Charlie Mays pants at some point during that night. Someone at the crime scene pulled down a dead man's pants. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Why? So they could give the scene a gay flair? Police Chief Thompson also testified that he didn't recall Charlie May's pants being pulled down when he first examined the scene. So it's pretty obvious that someone pulled down Charlie May's pants later in the evening after several investigators had already toured through the crime scene. This isn't okay. I know they want Tommy to seem gay, but number one, officers shouldn't tamper with crime scene evidence. And number two, it's super disrespectful to the deceased. I mean, I think Charlie May's may have been a murderer, but can we all just leave the dead man's pants alone? Okay, so I get it. It's really weird that Charlie May's pants are pulled down and unzipped, but the thing that really interests me about Charlie's pants is that his pant legs and shoes are absolutely caked with blood. His left pant leg has an almost wick effect, as if May stepped into a pool of blood and his pants just sucked the blood right up. The ridges and crevices in May's shoes were filled with blood, but the state maintains that Charlie Mays was killed in the back area of the store while the women were killed in the kitchen area and the showroom. You know, first Eunice in the kitchen, not first, but Eunice in the kitchen and Virginia in the showroom. And that's all much more towards the front of the store. Only Perry Edwards was anywhere near where Mays' body, and they're a few yards apart. So how did Charlie step in so much blood? Both Fry and Herb McDonald ignore all of this blood evidence on Charlie. I mean, think about it. If he's laying down and being beaten to death, that's not his own blood that he's stepping in, right? Because he's laying down. He's not walking in his own blood. But it's crazy to me because while blood spatter is a science that has really come under fire, there are things 
we can learn about a crime from blood at the scene. Like it's not completely a junk science, like bite marks or hair analysis, you know, that type of crap that, you know, we find out years later really means nothing. But Herb really focused on the junk part of blood analysis, really focusing on sprays of blood while ignoring large pools of blood and the massive amount of blood on Charlie's pant legs and shoes. The lack of footprints around Charlie's body, even though his shoes are very bloody, was never explained by the state. Because if you say, well, he was laying down, that's why there's no footprints. He was laying down, he's being beaten. That's why there's no footprints around him. But that means he stepped in somebody else's blood and that blood dried, had time to dry before he got to where he was killed. There are not a lot of explanations that will explain why Charlie Mays has shoes caked with blood that don't end up with him being a participant in the crime there that night. But we'll get into that as we go on further. But I just want you to note now, no footprints around Charlie's body, pant legs soaked in blood, shoes caked in blood. But that doesn't make the prosecution or the state question his what he was doing at that scene or what happened while he was there. They think they have the story straight. But despite the shoes being caked with blood and Charlie Mays leaving no bloody footprints in the store around himself, not even around his own body, there's no footprints, but he clearly had stepped in pools of someone's blood. The lack of bloody footprints around Charlie's body is maybe the most important evidence at the scene because it means that the blood on Charlie's shoes was dry when he was attacked that he had stepped into that blood at least 15 to 30 minutes before he was attacked. The blood on his shoes had time to dry before he was assaulted. Just think about that. It makes no sense if Tommy Ziegler killed him and lured him into that store. It makes no sense at all that Charlie would have time to step in blood, have it completely dry, and then be killed in the back, in the back of the storeroom. Because think about it, they enter through the front, steps in blood, Charlie's got all his blood all over him. And now it has to dry before he's attacked. Why would that have happened? Why wouldn't Tommy have immediately shot him as soon as he gets to the back area of the, of the store? It's not logical, at least not to me. The defense noted swipe marks and blood on the floor along the showroom's back wall that Fry and McDonald had determined was evidence of the fight between Tommy and Perry Edwards. The defense thinks that these swipes were from the other killers wiping up May's footprints at the scene. And that explains why Charlie has bloody feet, bloody shoes, but no footprints at the scene. I mean, it doesn't make sense for Tommy to wipe those up, but it makes sense for people setting a scene to make it look like, well, to, you know, erase their involvement. And create confusion. It makes sense for other killers to have wiped those up. The defense theorized that a London fog coat that Curtis Dunaway left at the store and was missing after the murders was used last minute by the killers to literally wipe away their tracks. Just remember, Charlie May's shoes were caked with blood and he didn't leave a single bloody footprint at the scene. If Tommy is the murderer, why would he wipe up Charlie's footprints if he was trying to set up Charlie to look like a murderer? Because bloody footprints would tend to incriminate Charlie. Why would Tommy wipe them up? These are questions that can't be answered unless you think. I mean, I, I, I don't, can't think of an answer that doesn't point to Tommy Ziegler being innocent, honestly. According to Fatal Flaw, that Philip Finch's brilliant book, there were only two places in the store that had pools of blood large enough to account for the blood on Charlie's pants. First, in the employee kitchen area, where Eunice lay, her head wound had created a large pool of blood. 
if you look at the crime scene photos, there's no bloody footprints around Eunice's body. Or attend, there's no attempt to clean up footprints around her body either. And the large pool of blood was near, um, you know, it, it doesn't look like anybody stepped in it. It's not smeared in any way. It, she's shot. She's on the ground, bleeds, and the blood collects there. And it doesn't seem like the blood was disturbed at all by anybody else. Now, there is a second large pool of blood that could be the source for the blood on Charlie May's pants. And that's the blood surrounding Perry Edwards' body. And he's located towards the back of the showroom where it kind of turns into the storeroom area. But according to Fry and the blood spatter expert, Herb McDonald, Charlie Mays was killed by Tommy almost immediately after entering the store. He never got into the area where Perry Edwards' body was located. Fry and McDonald never accounted for the massive amount of blood on Mays' shoes. It wasn't consistent with their theory, so they just ignored it. I think they wanted to try to pretend like it was Charlie's blood, but that doesn't make sense either, because if it's Charlie's blood, his footsteps should be around his body if he was stepping in his own blood, because there would have been no time for it to dry. And also, if they're claiming he was beaten to death while lying down, he really shouldn't have been stepping in his blood if he was lying down when he was beaten and killed. So there's an inconsistency there in their theory that they just never address. So spoiler alert, decades later, DNA testing finally shows that the blood on Charlie May's pants and shoes belonged to Perry Edwards, who, according to both Fry and McDonald, was already dead when Charlie Mays arrived at the store. Now, this is a direct quote from Herb McDonald, explaining that Perry, Virginia, and Eunice all had to be dead before Charlie Mays arrived at the store that night because, quote, to conclude otherwise would be to suggest that he, Charlie Mays, was present while the other victims were being killed and did nothing to prevent it. No, Herb. Herb. Charlie did something. He was one of the damn killers. That's how he ended up covered in Perry Edwards' blood. Charlie fought with that old man after he was shot, getting himself coated and caked in that man's blood. It's about the only explanation you can come up with it, for it. It's the only one that makes any sense. Okay, back to the lab results on the blood evidence. And keep in mind that the blood spatter expert never reviewed the lab results related to blood typing or bloody footprints, which is weird to me. I would think he would want to, you know, review all available evidence, but it seems like he's more like a, I just show up in the crime scene type of guy and I know exactly what happened. I mean, probably according to whoever's paying him, but I could be wrong on that. Who the hell knows? But I just find it very weird. There's all this testing that's done that could tell you more about the blood than what you can visually tell, but he doesn't need testing. He can visually tell everything that happened in the scene based on blood spatter. But then you get the test results and you tell the guy's completely all wrong, but you know, but you know, it's just my opinion and you know what the theory of the facts support so but anyway it just it bothers me that a man of science could be so disinterested in science when the defense gets the fbi's test results finally they immediately see that the fbi did not subtype any of the blood smears or droplets or anything from the crime scene none of the blood has been subtyped this is tragic it's a loss to the investigation. It's a loss to the case. It's a loss to justice. It's a loss to the truth because they had examples of everybody's blood, all the victims there. They would have been able to check and follow the people's paths that they moved in and whose blood was whose, who moved where by subtyping, but it was never done, which raises the question, had the blood been allowed to degrade to the point where it couldn't be subtyped while the investigators had waited for Herb McDonald to arrive. 
but I think there's a chance that it's even worse because there's no evidence that the tests were even attempted. The sheriff's department specifically asked the FBI lab to type and group the blood specimens as far as possible. So the sheriff's asked for the blood to be subtyped. You got it right there. And the FBI just didn't do it. That's pretty sloppy, but it could be worse. Some people have theorized that there was an agreement between the sheriff's department and the FBI lab or between the sheriff's department and the state, just, you know, whoever, and the FBI, where the FBI would not report any test results that didn't implicate Tommy. Now, I realize that's a pretty serious accusation, and I realize that it doesn't seem like it's completely founded in logic because the FBI did report results that were favorable to Tommy. And honestly, if they hadn't, the FBI wouldn't have been, had much to report at all because most of the results were favorable to Tommy. But there was an attempt to hide the negative results of the gunshot residue tests of Tommy's pants. Those were negative. And this implies that Tommy hadn't shot a gun that night, or at least hadn't fired the dozens of rounds found in the store after the murders. And later I'll talk about how the FBI threw out fingerprints, preventing the defense from ever having access to those prints. The FBI was, at a minimum, I would say doing subpar work. And sometimes with subpar work, you add up, you think, oh, it's, is it just, you know, people don't know what they're doing or people being lazy? But sometimes you add it all together and you're like, no, this might be a plan. But it's hard to figure out from the outside. So, but either way, it's horrible. It's either incompetence or a collusion. I mean, collusion is definitely worse, but the result is the same. Tommy has denied the evidence that would show that he's telling the truth. Subtyping of the blood at the scene could have taken away a lot of the guessing because of the paths that the victims took after being injured could have been tracked. But instead, the investigators just make claims that certain events happened at certain places. The failure to subtype the blood allows guessing to trump forensics and actual knowledge. And that's what you'll want when the facts and the evidence don't match up with your belief in someone's guilt. Which makes me think, maybe this was a plan. At this point, I wish that Fry would just admit that he was wrong when he assumed that the blood trail from the customer service desk to the front door was Tommy's. Because I think his assumption that bl that blood was Tommy's and that he had called for help after shooting himself was really, I, I feel like it was the foundation for Fry's belief that Tommy was guilty of murder. But some people just keep bulldozing on ahead, even when they're wrong. And I, I get the feeling that Don Fry is just that type of person. He can't be confronted with facts that don't agree with his facts which should tell you something we're dealing with isn't a fact because they're not really usually that disagreeable and debatable. People that can't admit they are wrong, I truly think they have no place in law enforcement. This type of temperament is really something that should be scanned for and screened out in the application process. I think it's part of the reason that Derek Chauvin couldn't take his knee off George Floyd's neck. And I never hear people say this. Everyone talks about racism and classism, and I agree. But I think that's what put that knee on the back of George Floyd's neck. I think it was the crowd yelling for the officer to stop that kept his knee there. Now, I'm no expert, but I wonder if no one had been yelling for Chauvin to let George Floyd up, that the man was dying, if he would have let George Floyd up anyway, but he just couldn't back down especially in front of that little small crowd. He couldn't relinquish his power. And at this point, when true crime follows, this is where we can elevate the discussion. And this is what I'm trying to do with this, even though I don't know what I'm doing, is I'm trying to make this more just, somebody was killed and salacious. And, I want it to be a discussion where we talk about things more. How can we change things? What's wrong in our system? And one of the things I think is ask what personality traits we should look for when we are building a law enforcement force and what human frailties we should avoid. I think that lacking personal accountability, the inability to accept that you're wrong, or maybe just old fashioned bullheadedness should be 
completely and utterly avoided. You don't want a police force of people who can't admit that they were wrong, who can't release their power and just take their knee off a dying man's neck. It's a great place, at least to start the discussion, because it's not all cops that are like this. And it's not just racism. There is a power connection that deserves to be explored. Okay off my high horse, just dismounted, and back to the case at hand. Everyone had listened to Don Fry proudly detail how the crime scene unfolded and all, all that it meant. And besides, you know, they had rushed to arrest Tommy. Tommy's already arrested. He's already gone through a preliminary hearing. He's already been indicted so he can stand, get the death penalty potentially. You know, everyone has heard Don Fry go on and on. This wasn't an actually a robbery gone wrong, like everyone else at the crime scene initially thought. It was only Dawn Fry that could look at that blood spatter and read the scene and see what truly had happened. You know, according to him. Hell, these test results didn't really start coming in until after the preliminary hearing. So it's too late in the game to admit that they arrested the wrong guy and that their whole theory about the night is crap. I mean, it's too late in their opinion. It's not too late in my opinion because Tommy Ziegler would have been rotten in jail for a crime, multiple murders he didn't commit for 40 some years. But once they connected to their answer and they got that ball rolling, these are the type of people that would never stop that ball. And these are the type of people that we don't need in our justice system. Once those forensic results stopped, started coming back and they didn't fit Fry's theory, he couldn't reverse course. Not after he had bragged so much and showboated in front of the other investigators that didn't immediately see what amazing things he saw. This case was the only reason why anyone knows who the hell Don Fry is. He was making a name for himself. He became an investigator for the state attorney after this trial. That's a big promotion from working as an investigator in a local sheriff's department. This was not just a career changer for Don Fry, but a life changer. How could he admit that he had read the scene wrong? Hell, he might have been so blinded by his own pride that he couldn't even see for himself that the evidence wasn't supporting his theory. I can't decide between if he was just ignoring things or if he was blinded. I, I really can't decide on this guy, but I can decide is I just don't like how he did things. And when I say that someone who can't admit they were wrong should not have a role in law enforcement, I, I mean, I, mean it's a, like, I think it sounded a bit too narrow with that statement. Such people should not have a role in any part of the judicial process because there is a lot of prosecutors out there who fight to block testing that could prove that an incarcerated man on death row or, you know, just serving a long sentence is innocent. And once the testing is done and proves that the jailed man is innocent, they argue procedural reasons or multiple rapist theories to keep a person that Dean has proven is innocent in jail. And this happens a lot. And you know where this happens a lot, especially in Florida. Yeah. Florida has a whole fleet of prosecutors that do everything they can to fight people from getting DNA testing. Oftentimes, this DNA testing is being paid for by the defense. There's, there's no cost to the state other than they want the finality of a decision made by a jury has to be final. But what's the point of that if the decision's wrong? I mean, think of that. We have The decision is final, but it's incorrect. Mm, but it's final. Who wants to win? like that. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I don't. I mean, there's a special place in hell where all these prosecutors hang out, you know, getting pineapple shoved up their asses probably, but we'll see. I mean, we won't see because we're not those people, but you know, we'll hear rumors. Okay. 
And to me, it's just shocking because sometimes I get the feeling that prosecutors don't really understand their role in the judicial process. It's not a purely adversarial process like most people think. The defense's attorney, the defense attorney's role is to do absolutely anything within the bounds of ethics to help their client. But it seems like many prosecutors think they are in the same position only they advocate for conviction. But the role of the prosecutor is to seek justice, not to seek a conviction at any cost. The defense attorney does not have that same goal. And somehow, many prosecutors think it's me against them. And that's just not how it's supposed to be. The prosecution's behavior in this case is really upsetting. I mean, at basically every turn, they took the opportunity to do the wrong thing. I shouldn't just say the prosecution either, because the investigators were just as bad, if not worse. Also, the judge was pretty terrible. So basically everybody that has the role of upholding justice and seeking the truth just didn't do that job. And that's why it's these things, it's not always one thing that causes an unjust conviction. It's a whole, generally, it's a whole bunch of things. It's not just one misstep or one person doing something that's shoddy or corrupt. It, it, it's a kind of a pile-on effect in my experience. Now, let me give you a little background on speedy trial rights in Florida, and then I will talk about how shady these prosecutors and investigators really were. Okay, so all states have different speedy trial rules. And keep in mind, we're talking about, you know, 1970s. So uh, honestly, I it, things could have changed. The speedy trial requirement in Florida required that Tommy be brought to trial within 175 days of his arrest. This is a much tighter time frame than most states. In my state, Pennsylvania, a trial must start within 365 days of arrest. So that's a big difference. So the lawyers have 175 days to prepare unless Tommy waives his right to a speedy trial, which is something that defense lawyers don't usually like to do because it is a procedural default rule that applies only to the prosecution. If the prosecution messes up and doesn't start jury selection in those 175 days, all charges against the accused are thrown out with prejudice, meaning that the accused can never be charged with that crime again. Think of it kind of like double jeopardy. So it's a pretty big right to waive. So just keep in mind, 175 days is like like we'll say six months from the rest. So they have six months to start jury selection. That's really very little time to investigate, conduct forensic tests, depose witnesses, conduct discovery, all your pretrial motions. It's really a lot going on in a very short amount of time. Also keep in mind, you also have your preliminary hearing in there. And during those six months, the investigators and the prosecutors in this case, they prevented the defense team from having access to the crime scene for about two weeks. And this is long enough that once the defense finally can get into the store, the blood inside is too old to be swabbed and subtyped and tested to determine whose blood is whose. So that's two weeks right there where they don't have access to the crime scene. And I'm not saying that the police shouldn't have access to the crime scene, but I think two weeks is excessive, especially when you know that you're losing evidence at that point. You lost evidence after 10 days. That shouldn't be allowed. The defense should have had access and been able to go in there and do their own swabbing. But also, I mean, ideally you'd be able to rely on the police to do the right thing and have swabbed it properly, but I don't think it's, I don't think we can rely on that, you know? Just too many factors. It's too, too, it's too, something too darn important to trust to somebody else. Let me put it that way. The prosecution promised to have those tests performed, but either the samples weren't collected properly or the FBI waited too long to test them because the tests were never conducted. The state also um, limited the defense's access to discovery materials, delaying handing over documents and physical evidence to the defense repeatedly always things were handed over. It was never easy. 
it was never a here you go. It was always filing motions and argument. And then once it's, you have to hand it in by this time, oh, it's right that second, you know. There's never, there's never five minutes before the deadline. It's always at that deadline, you know. You never, that, the prosecution never once handed something over early that I heard about. I could be wrong there, but I really doubt I am because it looked like they were hiding everything in the back for as long as they could. One of the items the defense really wanted to have access to were the pants that Edward Williams claimed he was wearing that night at the murders. The defense wanted to test these pants for gunshot residue. If there was residue, this would support William's story that he had put the gun in his pants pocket after Tommy gave it to him. If there was no gunshot residue on these pants, this would tend to show that Williams changed clothes and handed in different clothes to the police because he had something to hide. Something was on that clothing. Most likely, blood was on that clothing. The state had never tested the pants for gunshot residue probably because they were afraid the results wouldn't mesh with their theory of the case and would show that the star witness might very well be a liar. Remember, multiple people saw Williams wearing all brown that night at the KFC. And his landlord that saw him, his landlady, who saw him as he was leaving to go meet Tommy, also said he was wearing all brown. Multiple people are seeing this man wear all brown. He's going around town dressed like a turd. People noticed that. But Edward Williams turned in a green pants and a black sweater along with a brand new pair of dress boots with a tag still on the bottom. And I just want to address these dress boots because these things, they said dress boots. I, I don't know if I really know about dress boots for men. I, I guess maybe it's more of a 70s thing. I know dress shoes for men, but dress boots, I was like, I can picture it. Okay. Um, but when I saw a picture of these boots, they were, whew, were they 70s? I want to say they look like women's boots. They were the, they had no, they weren't laced up. They had a zipper. And they had a heel on them. It was a block heel, a chunky heel. But I would say at least three inches, maybe between three and four. I mean, it was a heel. Now, I know this is a time when people were dressing like that. But I'm telling you, not everybody was. Okay? Not everybody was. And also, this guy's going to make deliveries of furniture and crap. And he's going to wear basically high heels to do that. I mean, a lady wouldn't even do that. What's this guy doing wearing high heels for this? But the point of it is, those weren't the shoes he was wearing. He had to find another pair of shoes because something was on his shoes that he wore that night. You know, probably blood. But anyway, I just, when I saw those shoes, I was just like, oh, wow. This man is legit wearing high heel shoes. It's the past. Gotta love it. Now, he's wearing all brown. But then he turns in the green pants and a black sweater and his high heel shoes. Anyway, the point is that the state lied and said that the pants were with the FBI. In fact, they had never even been sent to the FBI. They were always in the state's custody. So the state lied to stall to buy more time so they didn't have to hand over evidence so the defense could test it. They outright lied and said the pants were with the FBI when the state had them the entire time. You can't trust liars. You know why? They lie. Yeah, that's the reason. Now, with the trial looming, the defense made discovery requests to get access to evidence. Ultimately, you know, the prosecutor's office issued a letter to the sheriff saying that they may, may release, that's the term, may release the pants to the defense. But get this, those turds at the sheriff's office read this to mean that releasing the pants and allowing their forensic testing was at their discretion. The sheriff's department refused to turn over the pants to the defense further delaying testing at each time when someone could do the right thing these people don't do it why would it be up to the the sheriff 
the sheriff's office to decide whether or not the defense team gets access to these darn pants. They know that's not their role, but they know we can't let them, they can't be finding this stuff out. That's what makes me think they knew the results on those, what the results were going to be when they tested those pants. I, I really have a feeling on that. Once again, like I'm saying, I could be entirely wrong, but the way they specifically deny and delay and do, it's at the FBI, but the state had it the whole time in actuality, and then they can finally release it and the sheriff said, no, we're not going to, further delaying. I mean, this is a type of delay that... It impacts the results of the trial. And that's what they were trying to do. And when you have to do sneaky shit like this to get a conviction, it's because you don't have the evidence to get a conviction. And you know why? Because you might be trying an innocent person for murder. And no one ever thinks that. Finally, the defense has to contact the prosecutor to get the sheriff's department to release the pants. I mean, this is ridiculous. It lowers my opinion of mankind. That move by the sheriff's department is repulsive. Why would it be their decision whether or not to hand over the evidence to the defense? They know that's not their role, but the state will do anything, anything to delay the defense's access to those pants. I'm just saying it again. I think they might just know what the results are going to be, and they don't want the defense getting those results before the trial's over. The pants would eventually be released to the defense, but all these delays by the state had worked. The gunshot residue testing results would not come back in until after the trial, after Tommy had been convicted, and the results were negative. The pants that Williams turned into the police had no gunshot residue, even though he said he had placed the gun that killed Perry and Virginia Edwards in his front pocket and carried around with him around town. Williams had turned into the police clothing that he had not worn that night, but because of the tactics of the prosecution and the investigators, this evidence would never be heard by a jury. How do these assholes sleep at night? I mean, at their age now, if they're still alive, I'm assuming probably having constantly to get up to go take a pee. But I'm just saying, how can you live with yourself when you're that disgusting? Are these people overly competitive? Like, are these like, are they failed athletes? Like, is it the competition level here? It's like, we have to win. We have to win. But sometimes not winning is the right thing. I don't know. Maybe they just lie so much to everyone else that they just lie to themselves and say that they did the right thing and they're good people and they had to do it to get a guilty guy. But like I said, you don't have to do this to get somebody that's guilty. The evidence will be there. You just got to figure it out. You don't got to manufacture it. You got to figure it out. Now you might wonder, why would the defense agree to go to trial if they were still waiting for lab results? I mean, shouldn't they have asked for a continuance? And they did, but that motion was denied just like almost every other motion that they made. The judge was clearly biased to the point where the judge's animosity could be easily seen in his dealings with the defense team. I saw an interview with one of the defense attorneys. Um, I can't remember if it was Terry Hadley or Vernon Davis, but he said, oh, I think it was Terry Hadley. I'm gonna say it was Terry Hadley. And he commented that in his decades long career, he had never tried a case that, like this where every objection made by the defense was overruled and every objection by the prosecution was sustained i mean i can think of only two i can think of a motion no was it i can think of two motions no i can think of one motion and one objection by the defense that was sustained and one's going to be a change of venue request and the other one's going to relate to some hearsay testimony in the future. And I think the change of venue ended up not helping Tommy. So that's probably why he's agreed to anyway, because he knew he was going to change the venue to the judge, you know, where he's going to move it to another place that wouldn't be hospitable. And the, uh, the hearsay thing, I just feel like it was so blatantly hearsay that you would never, it would have been a overturned the whole verdict situation. So, but motions made by the defense were pretty much consistently denied. 
and the judge visibly seethes with hate towards the defense and the defendant. And let me just tell you, a jury can see this. And it really impacts a jury if they think that the judge doesn't believe the defense. Then the jury oftentimes doesn't either because they think the judge is a person to be respected. He knows the law. He knows more than us. So he must know something behind the scenes. That's why he's treating these people like crap. But no, sometimes he's just biased and a terrible human being. That can always be the case. But it's like, it's a position you have respect for these people. It's like a doctor. You respect a doctor. But a doctor can do a bad job. I mean, you know, they leave sponges in people and weird shit like that. That's doing a bad job. Judges can do the same thing. They can do a bad job. But we have such a uh, deference to these people. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just, whoo, is it misplaced? But you have to ask yourself, you know, this judge is so biased. What are you going to do here? Okay. Well, the defense made a motion to have the judge recuse himself. And that motion was denied. Honestly, I really think anytime that a person is asked to recuse themselves, they just should. Also, why the hell should it be up to the biased judge to decide whether he is biased and needs to be removed from the trial? It's just crazy. That's a problem in jurisprudence in America. It shouldn't be up to the individual to determine whether they themselves need to recuse themselves from a trial. That needs to be an independent party that makes that decision. It's ridiculous. It's like being the, the judge at your own trial. Why, why would that be the case? You know, you can't do that stuff. But you hear me keep talking about this guy, about how biased he is. But why did the judge in Tommy's case, his name's Judge Paul, why did he hate the defense and Tommy just so much? Well, Tommy had testified in a trial against a friend of the judge's and the judge had testified in that same trial on behalf of his friend. But the judge's friend still ultimately lost the case. Way back in our first episode about Tommy Ziegler and the furniture store murders. I mean, can you remember way back then? It was a lifetime ago. Anyway, I talked about how Tommy had testified on behalf of Andrew James, a black bar owner who was in the winter garden area. The state had charged Andrew with selling marijuana out of his family's bar. Tommy knew Andrew well, and he felt that he was being railroaded by a group of whites that wanted Andrew to sell them you know, buy his liquor license. And Andrew refused to sell. And soon he found himself facing these allegations of, you know, dealing drugs out of his bar. If the state could prove these allegations, they can take away his liquor license and resell it to the white men who so desperately want that license. Well, Tommy helps Andrew with his case and testifies as a character witness for him. Judge Paul testified for his friend, the liquor agent. He had claimed that Andrews had sold him the drugs. Andrew ultimately won. He was allowed to keep his liquor license and Judge Paul's friend, the state agent, well, he eventually loses his job and he claims that he was like really bothered by the NAACP about this whole trial and the liquor license and the selling drugs and the whole Andrew James thing. And the former agent said that his family was harassed and his house was burnt down and they had to move. And I just find it interesting that this state agent is acting like the NAACP is the KKK. I'm not sure if he's saying the NAACP did all these things or if the black community itself did it to him. I mean, I can see people being upset. It looks like, based on the results, that this guy lied about someone selling drugs out of his family's bar so the state could take that license away from him. Basically, his family business that's been in his family for decades, for generations, and sell it to somebody else. So, yeah, I could see people being upset about that. But I just also think it's just weird. It's like, all these people are going to burn down my house, all this stuff. It's the, wait, 
that's KK, KK, KK. That's all the K stuff. That's not the NAACP stuff. But anyway, to me, I was just like, I'm, I'm not saying that stuff didn't happen. I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I just feel like it's like a reversal that you don't see too often. Anyway, Tommy and Judge Paul had been adversaries and Tommy had prevailed and the judge had clearly held a grudge. And this is where I will leave you this week. Almost all the forensic test results have supported Tommy's story that his family was already dead when he entered the rear of that store and was attacked. But after prematurely charging him with murder and facing Florida's six-month speedy trial deadline, the case continues to move forward because the state refuses to admit that they may have rushed to accuse and charge an innocent man with murder.